This week's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, ArteryInc.com. They're a local Wisconsin company that features anatomy and physiology-inspired design in their apparel and merchandise. I purchased a print from them at a farmer's market seven years ago, and now they're shipping worldwide. Please go and check out their stuff at www.arteryinc.com, that is I-N-K type ink, and use promo code PHPOD to save 10% on orders over $35, and please note this excludes the subscription boxes. Let's get to the show. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to provide medical advice. It exists only to entertain. In 1921, a Canadian orthopedic surgeon, while doing bench research on pancreas secretions instead of fixing broken bones, is visited by an unexpected guest as a scientific progress nears a groundbreaking discovery. Science, science, science. Doing all kinds of science. Every day I'm sciencing. Can't wait to publish these results on a mystery substance and share my findings with humankind, eh? Well, hello there. You must be Dr. Banting. I am. Who are you, bud? My name is Shmilai Shmilly. I represent the interests of a certain pharmaceutical company and was hoping to have a word with you. I see. Well, I'm busy sciencing today and I wasn't expecting any guests. Yes, indeed. Lots of science happening here. Yep, look at all the science. Okay, well, what do you want? Me? Oh, nothing. I, I just wanted to say hello, that's all. Oh, I'm sure that's not all. Well, okay. I was hoping to make you an offer. An offer for what? For the rights to your research. The company I represent is... Very enthusiastic about your sciencing and would like to make itself available to help you science on what it is you're sciencing on about. What was the science about again? Well, I'm looking for a treatment for diabetes and I'm quite close. Ah, yes, that seems like important science. Very lucrative, if successful, I imagine. Yeah, but that's not why I'm sciencing. I science for betterment of humanity. <coughs> uh, are you okay? <laughs> yes. Wait, were you serious? Yeah. Me and my colleagues plan to give away rights to the patent on this stuff once our science is complete. And then we're going to go to Tim Hortons. That's very noble of you. Good good for the press as well. Excellent optics. Yeah, I'm not sure what that means. But anyway, I'd like to get back to my science now. Sure. Go on ahead. Without you watching me? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, I like working by myself, too. All right. Good day, then. Off you go. Yep. On my way. Oh, I almost forgot to ask. You do know what money is, right? Yep. I'm well aware. I'm just checking, because I think you can make a, a lot of it based on your science. Yeah, since you're trying to linger, can I ask you something? Sure. Do you realize you're going to be the bad guy in this story, right? What? No, no, I don't think so. Unrelated, but do you mind if I grab a few of those pancreases and a notebook or two for the road? I would mind. Fine. We'll find a way. I can hear you, you know. There's not likely to be any consequences for our actions, so meh. How do you sleep at night? A king-size bed of profits. Wow. Yeah, I guess I'm the bad guy. Oh, 
Welcome everyone, this is Poor Historians, a podcast delving into the archives of medical history. As three emergency physicians, we'll explore the unusual ailments, treatments, physicians, and all related material having to do with the healing arts. I'm Max, and I'm joined here by my good friends and colleagues, Aaron and Mike. Gentlemen, are you ready to grind up some organs and inject them into stuff for science? <laughs> Heck yeah. Well, you know, I'm it's amazing the... how many things actually happen that exact way. The science grind set? <laughs> yeah. This is one Rise of those grind. things. I don't think they meant pancreas when they said rising grind. <laughs> so as far as shout outs go, I I don't know if a shout out can also be an apology. So I'm going to try that out. Uh, the idea for this episode was actually sent to me by a fan of the show. And I really, 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 really wanted to give them credit, especially since they sent a really cool article that I started reading. But this was uh, over a month or so ago, and I put it to the back and I cannot find it. I can't find it in any of our social media stuff and any of our emails. I cannot find out who you are, and I, I remember very distinctly you sending a great idea about this. So if you are the person who sent us that, I am so sorry, but I lost track of what you sent me, but I remembered the idea, and I still want to give you credit. So reach out to us again, if so, and I'll figure out a way to make it up to you on a future shout-out or show, if that sounds fair. It was me, man. See, it was not you. Yeah, it was. Remember that email that I sent that you lost? No. About... See, Max, if you, if you had teenagers in your house, they'd be able to find it in like mm. like two seconds. They'd just be like, oh, here. <laughs> and they do something to your actually, phone. I have, a, I have a personal conspiracy theory because whenever I can't find anything, I do. I just, uh, I ask my wife and she 98% of the time knows. can tell yeah, me sure. exactly where it is in the house. Because she hid yep. it. <laughs> so thank, thank you. Thank you. Because that is my actual thought. So I think that my wife has systematically been doing this for the entirety of our marriage and relationship because Ooh. now I'm completely dependent on her ability to tell me where anything that I own or need right now is. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be, you know, where is the pen or where's the scissors or, you know, some obscure elect tool that I have in the basement and she'll still know where it is. So I do think that she has a conspiracy of doing this because with if she's not around, I can't find anything and function on my own. Max, that's called gaslighting. And it's not healthy. You hear that, wife? If you're listening to this, you hear that? (laughs) Mike's on my side. Yep. Stop gaslighting Max. (laughs) (laughs) So moving on to the main segment. We're going to be talking about the history of insulin, the discovery of insulin, because basically insulin's been around as long as people or animals have have pancreases. So I thought... Since we're, we don't want to go too deep into the medical how things work weeds, but we need to touch on a little bit. I think to understand the importance of the discovery of insulin, you kind of have to understand what diabetes is and why it's such a difficult disease to treat, especially in the time before insulin. Do you guys agree? I yes. agree. I'm, I'm anxious to see how you simplify endocrine down to just, you know, a paragraph. <laughs> no, absolutely. So it all begins with calcium channel calcium channels and the flow of ions and i'm just kidding i don't remember any of that stuff i just got a little queasy right there without going too deep into those weeds of the diabetes pathophysiology we're going to do a really brief over simplified kind of discussion here so broadly we're going to we're going to talk about diabetes and the type one in the type two kind of framework and for the most part when we're referring to diabetes in this show today, we are talking more of type 1 diabetes. And this is the type of diabetes where the body stops making the hormone called insulin. We'll talk about what insulin does, but what um, what's really important to know is that there are these two types. And the second type of 
diabetes is where you can make insulin, but your body is resistant to it. And that's a whole nuanced discussion that we're just going to push off to the side. So let's return to the your body cannot make insulin if you have developed type 1 diabetes. The most basic way this works is you eat food, the food gets digested into a bunch of different various chemical substances, one of which is sugar, which ends up in your bloodstream, and your cells need sugar to do the cellular things. So insulin is a hormone that your body makes, your pancreas makes, and the insulin lets your cells, all the cells in your body, take the sugar from the bloodstream and bring it inside so they can use it, right? So if you don't have insulin... The blood sugar just keeps building up and building up and building up, and all your cells are basically starving because they can't use it. Is that a pretty good oversimplification? Yeah. I wish yeah, I would have known this back then. I might have actually gotten a better grade in endocrine. <laughs> <laughs> I was, it amazes GMP, me. I always think of it GMP, as like... Cyclic GMP. Oh, <laughs> yep. oh gosh. Like that I, I scene in the movie enough. where the main power in the world has gone out, and you go into the generators, and the lights flicker, and everybody's like, ooh... Yes, yep. because like, you, you have all these backup power supply systems in your body. They're just not as efficient. So like, people don't notice right away because they're on their backup power. And I was like, oh, kind of ominous. Absolutely. And so, you know, the I think one of the big questions is well, why why does your body stop producing insulin? And, you know, there's there's still some ongoing science trying to figure out this question. But I think one of the leading explanations is a phenomenon where the immune system sees certain cells within the pancreas, the cells that make insulin, as they start to recognize them as foreign substance and the immune system attacks them. And so it takes away those cells of the pancreas. Therefore, it doesn't make insulin anymore. And it's thought that this might happen after certain illnesses, like certain viral illnesses. But you also kind of see a little bit of this run in families. So there's probably a bit of genetic uh, component to it. And uh, there you go. There's your overview of type 1 diabetes and how it generally works. Somewhere in my closet, there's a little index card that has HLA dash something that's associated with diabetes. HLA dash B27 haplotypes. I pulled that one out of the Ooh. recesses of my brain. No, you and, didn't. Uh, you I just looked at it, Max. You I actually did not. That is from that is from my brain. I, I believe you. Type two diabetes, like I mentioned, is mentioned is where you can make insulin, but your body kind of becomes resistant to it. So again, I just want to redirect to say we're going to be talking about primarily type one diabetes here. But you can definitely use insulin in the treatment of type 2 diabetes. Less I'll say about that for now. So what does this look like in practice? Like, how does how does this affect a person? And what do those symptoms look like? And here's the thing. You, you don't, um, it doesn't like, even though this could possibly happen pretty quickly, you may not get symptoms for days to weeks. And so it starts insidiously. Uh, as the pancreas, which is this digestive organ that is kind of like under your, your, your um, the, bottom of your sternum kind of towards the back under which you know the solar plexus which would definitely be my finisher if i was a wrestler it's it, it does two things so one it helps you digest food by squirting a bunch of juices into your intestines and letting you break down food but it also secretes hormones into the bloodstream like insulin so it's a complicated organ uh, i believe surgeons do have a saying correct when they open up the the abdomen if they've mm -hmm. got to do any work around mm -hmm. the pancreas what's yeah. that saying don't fuck the pancreas. the pancreas. Yeah, don't, don't touch the pancreas. No, it's don't <sighs> with the pancreas. <laughs> yeah, Fair that's. Enough. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think uh, paraphrasing or not, that's pretty much the thing of it. So when you eat that food and your blood sugar level goes up, your pancreas can detect that and say, "Oop, we need to make some insulin. Let's release the insulin, and that way all the cells of the body." can use all that sugar you just ate and ingested, right? Simple process. So if your blood sugar goes really low, your pancreas says, hey, we don't need a lot of insulin right now. If your blood sugar's high, make more insulin so we can use all that energy. That's the, the most basic way I could put it. You guys following so far? 
I, I just kind of tuned out like I normally do so far. I boy. Through this I had a boy. Yeah, were you still talking, Max? <laughs> <sighs> it's just the overwhelming respect on the show that keeps me coming back here. <laughs> so when someone develops diabetes, that pancreas stops making insulin, like I said. And this presents a really big problem because the symptoms that you have as that blood sugar keeps climbing and climbing and climbing they start to become noticeable to the patient, but then they can kind of hit a critical point where uh, it's, you're really kind of in a tough spot. And this is uh, often uh, how we find people with diabetes. Not every time, but a lot of them may show up to an emergency department and say, hey, I've been having all these symptoms. And they can include things like really thirsty because as that sugar builds up, it basically causes your kidneys to pee out a lot more fluid. The kidneys are trying to get rid of extra sugar. As you keep peeing out, peeing out, peeing out more fluid, you dry up, dry up, dry up, and they just come in saying, I keep drinking water. I cannot I cannot quench my thirst. A lot of times they may um, have fatigue. They may actually develop blurry vision because all that blood sugar actually swells the lenses of the eye. And so, uh, you know, the weakness and some things that are pretty vague, but then when you go, oh yeah, by the way, you've been drinking all this water and let's check your blood sugar and it's through the roof. You made your diagnosis. You figured you figured out uh, pretty much what's happening here. And the interesting thing about this is while your body has got tons of blood sugar running around, it's actually starving because it can't use any of the sugar. It's like it's the grocery store is full of food and you want to go get some, but it's locked and you can't get in. So it, it's just one of these things where you have all this abundant energy, but your body can't use it. So when they present to the emergency department in really later stages of the disease, they're starving, dehydrated, and their body is burning everything it can burn to make energy happen, except it just can't really use sugar. And so they come in very sick and this can require ICU level care. And here's the thing, before we had any treatment, this was almost pretty much universally fatal for everybody. And unfortunately, that means a lot of kids because it often comes in childhood, right? Yeah. Wow. I guess I didn't really think about that pre-insulin just because I've always existed. We've always had insulin. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They they do refer, uh, at least I found, so I read a few articles about this, and one of them referred to the pre-insulin era as the era of frustration. It's something we always kind of think about. We always look at a lot of these diseases and and just, I think, because we're born in this era, we always think like, oh, yeah, diabetes, that was a couple of hundred years ago and maybe it popped up. But, uh, you know, fact of the matter, obviously, a lot of these things have been with people as long as people have been people. So we know that, like, going back to 1552 BCE, there was the Ebers papyrus, which basically was found in Egypt. And it said it showed that they were using treatments and describing a disease that is diabetes. So the ancient Egyptians were onto this, ancient Greeks, ancient uh, Indian physicians, Chinese physicians. So like Indian texts from the ancient world, uh, two, two physicians, uh, Sushruta and Sharaka from 400 to 500 common era, they actually suggested there was a difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, which is hmm. crazy advanced given the time. Now, they may not have known all the inner workings, but they could tell that there was a little bit of difference between the two types. Um, the Greeks probably coined the term diabetes from the works uh, as far back as 129 to 199 common era and the word from greek means passing through or siphon which i'm sure there are a lot of these ancient texts point out the large volumes of urine that come from diabetic patients uh, and even the romans had a term for diabetes diarrhea urinosa mm. which <laughs> is probably as unpleasant as it sounds i don't know if there's a worse kind of diarrhea but that but that if it comes out good. of your urinosa, that's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> so 
the uh the other fun part was uh my favorite of all these uh thomas willis a british physician used the term diabetes mellitus in 1674 mm-hmm. so take the diabetes add the mellitus onto it and yeah make it fancier sure i get that but i prefer the other way he referred to the disease in his writings as the quote pissing evil end quote <laughs> and i would like to see that written in more charts to be honest he's called the pissing evil well there were two That's... kinds there's still two kinds of diabetes right That's Melis was the sweet one, right? Oh, you're going to get to that probably, aren't you? No, not no. Not. So go the for it. The story is insipidus, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Did no. you? Well, they're both pissing evils, that's, right? Yeah, that's a I mean, deep cut medical it's pun. Salt and sugar. Yeah, salt and sugar. Yeah, when salt and sugar. So that's salt, people never believe that that doctors used to have to taste urine to figure out what kind of pissing disease people had. But on the one hand, if you, if it's it's sweet, you taste the sugar in the urine. And the other hand, if it's where on the insipid, tongue do you have to put it to? Determine if it's salty. You have to yeah, put way it in the back. back. You got to just gargle a big, full, like <laughs> big, full gulp. <laughs> just this gargle it. Has diabetes insipidus. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just share a good break here? One of my sure. favorite um, scenes in a TV show ever is. Does it have anything to do with diabetes? It does. It has everything okay. to do with it. And I still like. I've used this joke at work, not with pain. You know, it's like one of those things, whatever. It's a funny thing. So it's on 30 Rock. Tracy Morgan's character goes to the doctor and he's sick and and the doctor comes in the room and he's like an incompetent doctor, right? Like most of us. But he goes in the room and he goes, um, I don't know how to say this, but you have diabetes. And Tracy <laughs> Morgan's like, diabetes? He's like, oh, that's how you say it. <laughs> like he was saying he didn't know how to say the word. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, look that up. Link link the video. Link the video. You should. That clip. You know what? You I don't know how to do link, that. I will, buddy. All right. I'll Go send it to you. It. But give I can't, me a link. I can't text it to you because you have an Android, but I'll uh, I'll email mm. it. In the, <laughs> So, <laughs> returning to the topic at hand. So, you know, what? the question is, what did... What did what did the course in treatment of somebody who had diabetes look like in the pre-insulin era? It was just bad because there really wasn't any treatment. So as their bodies are no longer making insulin, people are just getting these sicker and sicker symptoms and, you know, ending up in the worst stage of diabetes, which we've been alluding to, but that's where the blood sugar builds up so much. Your body's in a hyper-starvation mode. We call it diabetic ketoacidosis. Literally, the blood starts turning more acidic. It's it's pretty gnarly. It's very treatable now, but then it would just be fatal. And so, you know, but they had to try something before 1921 when they found insulin. So there were some interesting, interesting things tried. The uh, ancient... Uh, Egyptians, they were on that papyrus that I mentioned, they were keen to uh, try some things like uh, mixtures of bones, wheat, grain, grit, green lead, and earth. I don't know what green lead is, and I'm guessing earth is just dirt, but uh, you know, <laughs> hey, try, I guess, try something. Um, but in the 1850s, a recommendation was made that you know what? They kind of recognize that when people develop these symptoms, they would start wasting away, they'd start losing their mus- muscles, they'd be starving, basically, like I said. And so they said, you know what? You need a lot of calories. So in the 1850s, they would uh, try to get people to eat as much as possible, uh, which is kind of the opposite of what you would want to do. Because the more you eat, the more calories uh, become sugar, and now you've got extra yeah, sugar on top of your sugar. It. I was actually wondering if you could potentially trade a little bit by just going super ketotic and low glycemic well, index, but no. I mean... Nailed it. I don't know, kind of. But the uh, there was a French hygienist and pharmacist in the 19th century named Apollinaire Bouchardat 
who, coming upon diabetic patients during something called the Siege of Paris in 1870, he kind of noticed that they had a lot fewer symptoms. So if they had diabetes, they just weren't as sick and it was because they were kind of starving. And so he recommended a low sugar diet. I don't know how he got to the low sugar part, but you know, he was kind of on the right track there. And this was kind of the standard up until the 1920s is like severe caloric restriction, trying to avoid extra sugar. And, you know, around that time, at least as you approach 1920, they knew that blood sugar was part of this thing. But we're going to kind of go into how they figured that out. So, yeah, the best they could do is just starve you. You're already starving and it might prolong your life a little bit, but it's obviously sounds miserable. Yeah, I mean, I, wow, that's great. I'm glad I figured that out. I, I'm, I like to think I provide care at the standard of uh, mid 18th century French. <laughs> Sometimes we do because we don't really do anything. <laughs> Sit there and look. Smile uh, and wave, boys. Just smile and wave. <laughs> so, you know, to, to figure out how to treat this disease, you got to kind of figure out how it's, it's, uh, how it, it comes about, right? And so they had to figure out the pancreas and, a little bit of a side story and how they get to discovery of insulin. It's kind of fun. So in 1869, there's a gentleman named Paul Langerhans, which anybody who's been through med school is definitely going to perk ooh, up ooh. at that one. Langerhans yeah. cells? Ooh, 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 no, ooh, no, Islet of Langerhans. Oh, oh, it's literally in there. Who's no. doing it? Hey, who's doing the essay? <laughs> no, who's, I know, who? but everybody remembers Islets of Langerhans. No, of course. So Paul Langerhans, he's a medical Aaron. student in Berlin. He's looking at <laughs> pancreas tissue under a microscope, and, and he, he kind of finds these little areas of cells that are like kind of like dotted, you know, heaped together in the the field of uh, pancreas tissue. And he these later become referred to as the islets of Langerhans, named after him. I would have called them heaps of Paul. <laughs> well, we don't give you microscopes, man. <laughs> In 1889, German physicians Oskar Minkowski and Joseph von Mehring, they do their an experiment with kind of the removal of pancreas from dogs. So I don't God, love that, but uh, they find out that if dogs. you remove the pancreas from a dog, uh, all of a sudden their urine starts to become sweet. I don't know who proposed that one. Hey, I got how an did, idea. How, how come up. cats, is it just people don't want to mess with cats? Like they... They've been doing experiments for how many years? And dogs are just as far away from humans as cats. So how do cats avoid all this? They're just as accessible. And, uh, I want to know. Yeah, They, they have just, knives on their hands. It's because everybody's scared dogs of cats. Dogs are trusting. That's They're, why. Yeah. No, I, yep. Oh, poor dogs. They're like, oh, what you got going on over there? I'll come over here. I, and couldn't believe thing it. You know, one year, a friend of ours babysat uh, cats are... Our, our, our previous cat, uh, the great Milo Scott Bon Jovi III, who has passed away now, sadly, <laughs> oh. but was a giant angry tabby cat who liked two people on earth, myself and my wife, and our friend uh, in medical school, cat sit while we were on vacation, and we came back, and he was like groomed and had all his nails trimmed, and we were like, what did you do? And she's like, oh, I trimmed his nails, I brushed him out, like he how? <laughs> she's like, oh, you just sneak up on him and wrap him in a blanket, and I was like, did are you injured? Like, what happened? She's like, no, but uh, he didn't like it. And yeah, that... that was the only time, as far as I'm aware, that cat ever had his nails trimmed. <laughs> he lived to be 19. He had a great life. Don't worry about it. So, 1901, the American physician and scientist Eugene Lindsay Opie, Eugene Lindsay Opie, discovers that diabetes seems to occur when there is destruction of those islets of Langerhans. So look at the tissue, notice that people with 
diabetes are missing those islets in, in the pancreas tissue, so they're starting to put this together. In 1910 and 1916, Sir Edward Albert Sharpie Schaefer is a lot of names here. I don't, everybody gets so many names. He's the one who described the pancreatic islands, those islets of Langerhans, those little clumps of cells, as he suspected they were secreting a substance since when they were gone, diabetes developed, he suspected that they must be making that some sort of substance, and he called it insulin, which actually comes from the Latin word for island. So again, paying a little bit of homage to... Boiling Look at that. That's how you do it. You don't say, you don't call it Al- Albert Sharpelin. <laughs> call it <laughs> what it is. Albert Sharpelin. Yeah. Albert Sharpelinium. Yeah. Albert Sharpie Schaeferlin. <laughs> now, in fairness, and there's there's a lot of kind of controversy in like who discovered what. Uh, there's some other scholars that think the Belgian, Jean de Meyer, may have been the first to have this idea. Um, but neither of these guys, even though they suspected insulin was a thing that existed, they could, they didn't isolate it. They couldn't identify it. So they just had to suspect that those little islands are making a substance that has to do with this disease. So we'll move on to a few of our main characters. There is Dr. Frederick Banting, who is an orthopedic surgeon, a Canadian orthopedic surgeon, and Charles Best, a Canadian scientist. Uh, who start doing these experiments in 1922 to try to figure out what the substance might be. So Banting himself, as mentioned, orthopedic surgeon, comes from a small Ontario farm. He apparently was going to divinity training, but then he stopped that to go into medicine, which is probably a good thing for a lot of humanity since he did help basically drive the discovery of this stuff. He was reading a prior work uh, from 1920 called The Relation of the Islets of Langerhans to Diabetes by Moses Barron, and Banting sets out to try and figure out what that stuff is. I'm sure it was thrilling reading, but that's what he was doing in 1920. I don't know. Didn't have anything else to do. And Best was just was a scientist who did sciencey things with him and uh, seemed like they were a pretty good team. So they set about trying to remove the pancreases from dogs to reset up some of these experiments but instead of like surgically taking the pancreas out they find out that if they block off the duct work if you will the where the pancreas squirts those juices into the intestines if they block that stuff off Gross. then the parts Moist of the pancreas juices. that secrete those juices go away they 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 are no longer active that leaves you with a bunch of perfectly functioning islets of langerhans so you're like degenerating all the parts of the pancreas that you don't want to study, and then you're leaving the islets there so that you can study them. I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't sound kind of cruel. It definitely is cruel just on its surface, but it's also fairly inventive. Got to give it that. Max, can I interrupt for a second? No, you can't. So it's been bothering me when you say pancreases because it just doesn't sound right. (laughs) So the plural of pancreases is pancreata. So please, (laughs) moving forward. (laughs) Really? For my comfortability. Yeah, I had to Google it. It's not like I knew what it was, but oh, I knew you it knew wasn't pancreatitis. You're like the orthopedic I surgeons really who pretend they can't manage diabetes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they were doing a lot of pancreatitis. Hey, look, <laughs> the Google document says it's correct. So because <laughs> it was it was created by an imperfect human, and that's okay. Wow. Anyway, so they are atrophying these pancreases. They are causing them to shrink down, except for those islets of Langerhans, so they can do their experiments on it. Pancreases. (laughs) Everything starts with Dr. Banting working in this laboratory, and he actually ends up working under a uh, professor named John James Richard McLeod. 
Jeez Louise. Oh, damn, what? So many names. I didn't realize this until I Was he from the clan McLeod? <laughs> I'm sure he was. Hi, yeah, the so mortal. he's the John guy. Jacob, isolate insulin from pancreatic. <laughs> that song is just as catchy when you put it to, to those lyrics. <laughs> so McLeod is, he, he basically runs the lab. He's at the, uh, I believe, University of Toronto. He's kind of the overseer, but Banting and Best go about trying to figure out this problem of what is the substance coming out of the pancreases. So uh, a couple juice. of assistants, it, the juices, the pancreatic juices, that is actually used in medical terminology too, which is something that makes yeah. me happy. Digestive juices. Mm. It's unacceptable. Mm-mm. It's perfectly acceptable. And so McLeod is kind of skeptical because Banting doesn't have a lot of formal bench research history, but he says, sure, why don't you come and try to figure this problem out? And so Banting and Best, and they're joined by a couple of other folks. Uh, one is a gentleman named uh, Clark Noble, who is a scientist as well. And later they'll be joined by another guy I'll mention when we get there. And so all together, they're trying to figure this, this what what's coming from the stuff. So after they atrophy the pancreases in the dogs, they take all the tissue that is still alive, which is just a bunch of those islands, they grind it up, they make an extract out of it, and they inject it into dogs with diabetes. And what do you know? It, uh, it's, it does lower the dog's blood sugar levels. So it seems that they're proving the point that something from those, islet, those little islets, those little microscopic chunks of pancreas, something is helping the diabetes at the very least. Fun fact is that when Best and Noble joined Dr. Banting in the lab, apparently there was a coin flip at the beginning that said, hey, you guys are both going to be helping me out, but I need somebody to start these first couple of months, and the next guy will come in in three months, so we're going to flip a coin and find out who does that. And uh, uh, Dr. Best basically wins that, and uh, later we'll share credit in the Nobel Prize that happens because he's like the first guy to work with him for the first few months, and then I believe Noble... I don't think he got credit for the Nobel Prize, which means you should always pick tails because statistically it's more likely to happen. True story. <laughs> yeah, so Noble spent his last years in an apartment spray-painted heads all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Just... Laces out. <laughs> I believe so. As their experiments are going forward and actually getting some results, uh, McLeod, who is the overseer of the lab, becomes pretty impressed. And he says, all right, let's give you a bigger lab. It's better. It's got more things, more bells, more whistles, Bunsen burners everywhere. You guys do your work. And it takes quite a bit of time when you're doing this experiment, like weeks to a month. Like once you close off the ducts of the pancreas, it actually takes quite a bit of time for it to atrophy. So it's not a very quick experiment. Uh, You know, so every time you want to make a pancreas extract, you got to wait like six to eight weeks. So you figure let's, uh, you know, dog pancreas is only so big. Let's go get a bigger pancreas. And so they try some interesting things. They take uh, a fetal calf pancreas because it actually has not developed the secreting part of the the pancreas. So all those islets develop first. So I mean, it's one way to kind of get around the the, the time period. But by December of 1921, they are able to extract from adult cow pancreas. That's a big pancreas, right? So lots of pancreas mush, right? Inventive, simple. Yeah, it's like when they used uh, horses for horse for for serum for some of the yeah, horses have lots of blood, big volume of that. Yeah, it's the volume, baby. Is that really? It's. It, I mean, they are literally it. using. So and we'll we'll get to it a little bit, but a lot of the first insulin that we we had was all just derived from extracting it from animal pancreases. So yeah. bigger pancreases Pancreata. mean more insulin. Best is just like steak for dinner again. My God, I refuse to learn new words at my age. 
pancreata. One of my favorite diagnoses is hemosuccus pancreaticus, just because it sounds cool. <laughs> All right. Is that a real thing? Continue. Yeah. Come on, mm. Max. So <laughs> at this point, they're kind of struggling because they're they're like able to kind of get this extract to work a little bit, but they're just not having a lot of luck purifying it. So a gentleman named James Bertram Collip, who's a biochemist, joins a team uh, to basically help them purify the extract further to hopefully get to the molecule that's helping all this. And he does improve the process. Apparently he wasn't really well liked by Banting and Bess, the like two first guys on the team. Uh, they kind of saw him as like an interloper. <laughs> so they're like, even though he refined their process and uh, after they do find insulin and kind of start using it, uh, James Bertram Collip, uh, he's kind of leaves a picture. So sad. I don't think they got along very well. That's too bad. Well, he only had three names. So, you know. That's the thing. That's If he had more names, he would have uh, done a lot better. So it brings us to our first human use. So while they're doing all this and they're, they're grinding down animal pancreases and squirting unpurified extracts into animals, I guess they're purified, but they're just not a, not a clean medication. They decide, uh, McLeod is impressed enough. He says, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and authorize in, in 1922 in January. I think we should just go ahead and start with the human trials, which is a lot more efficient process to... <laughs> a guy with a lab who says, yeah, this looks promising. Let's go ahead and throw it into a 14-year-old kid. But uh, that's just how it worked back then. So that brings us to our first patient who gets treated with pancreas extract. By this time, after Collip has done his magic, they actually do hone in on the, the, the insulin molecule. They do find that this seems to be what people need. And so they once they purify that, they try it on the first patient, and that's Leonard Thompson, a 14-year-old, uh, and believed to be the first patient to ever get insulin. Uh, this is on January 11th, 1922. Is this in Canada? And, yes, it is. It's at Toronto General Hospital. And so uh, it sounds as if Thompson, I'm not sure if he was in the the really later stages of diabetic acidosis, but he's definitely pretty sick is the way that it's described. They're measuring his urine levels of sugar. They're measuring his blood levels of sugar. And what they're doing is they're taking this, this extract that they have purified down to insulin, and they're giving it to Thompson. And they notice pretty remarkable change. His sugar levels drop. Uh, a lot of his other symptoms, like you know, fatigue, you know, getting blurry vision, and just you know, a lot of times folks uh, with bad diabetes will start vomiting because they're just so dehydrated. Anyway, it's reversing all those things. So it's like amazing. Only downside is he gets like uh, a really bad allergic reaction because <laughs> it's not as pure as it's, it could be. It's cow extract. Just yep. Intravenous yep. cow extract. So even though it's mostly insulin, it's also like cow bits and, you know, <laughs> what ha or, or ox pancreas, I think, is actually what they were using. They were impressed that it did seem to work, but, you know, downside. So they give it back to James Bertram Collip, the biochemist, and he purifies it even more, like works. It sounds like he really works over like 12 days, kind of day and night to purify it even further. And by now, there's no allergic reaction. And so on second dose, which was given on January 23rd, 12 days after the first one, uh, Thompson's urine glucose goes to normal and basically they find that his symptoms have all been completely reversed they do return a couple of days later when he doesn't receive it but it solidifies the fact that they are they they have found it they have found it and so once they purify it down to pure insulin they start using it on other folks the uh, first american to re receive insulin is elizabeth hughes gossett who apparently was the daughter of a u.s secretary of state charles evan hughes 
Uh, she get, she lived to age 73. Uh, it's estimated she received uh, about 42,000 insulin shots over her lifetime and uh, went on to have a successful legal career. I believe she passed away from a, a heart attack, it said. So that's uh, that 42,000. That's an interesting number. We don't think about that. But like when you have the news where they're talking about mm-hmm. how insulin costs are going up, it gives you some mm-hmm. sense of what that means mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah definitely like Ooh, that's that a part lot of, of administration well was it a sliding scale because <laughs> insulin now is different you know like you could have some longer yeah, there's extra oh, yeah. insulin so you yeah maybe we right. cut it in a quarter well or by a quarter well, well actually i'll talk about kind of how they made insulin back then or like the difference in what you would get back then and so it might uh, give you some perspective there. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the uh, first doctors to have insulin was Dr. Joe Gilchrist. He's also felt to be maybe the first to suffer from too much insulin. Uh, and so he was uh, uh, one of the early patients in that time period. And uh, the thing about insulin is that uh, if you have, if your blood sugar is not super high and you take extra insulin, your blood sugar goes dangerously low. And dangerously low blood sugar is way more dangerous in the quick immediate than high blood sugar yeah absolutely my inner pedant always gets like people are always like this person has to eat they have diabetes and i sigh internally but you know it's not they're 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 kind of right because almost always what they mean is my loved one is being treated with insulin so they need to eat because usually no, it's they usually are. when they haven't it's usually like they've been waiting or doing uh, some those ones workout. i really internally sigh i'm like you really don't have to eat <laughs> but it could but, be that they're they're like informed and appropriately afraid of low blood sugar right not knowing yeah. that their right. condition causes I think high blood exactly sugar where that comes right from, right right so. yeah it's the insulin not not the diabetes but that's why i don't say it out loud <laughs> oh yeah i've never me... ever uh i'll often correct like you know diabetes is a problem where your blood sugar goes too high we haven't given insulin so we're not worried about low blood sugar i'm happy to check the blood sugar again fair it's, it's all fair so uh, but Dr. Joe Gilchrist, basically, he gets uh, hypoglycemic, meaning very low blood sugar. You know, blood pressure is in the toilet. It, it, this is dangerous. People can have seizures. People will be confused. Often you start sweating a lot. And so the problem is, you know, your brain needs blood sugar. Your brain is a huge consumer of your blood sugar. And so if your blood sugar gets too low, that's why folks get really spacey. And uh, and then again, they can seize. And so really dangerous. So you got to get your insulin dosing right. At this point, as insulin is starting to be used in the 1920s, they're they're still just doing purified cow ox pancreas extract. They don't have a way of making just the molecule insulin, even though they can isolate it and they can identify that's what we need. Just can't like make an insulin factory, right? Like how do you how do you do that? So in 1923, the Nobel Prize is awarded to Banting and McLeod, and uh, they actually nicely enough they split it. They split the 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 accolades and the prize money with uh, Best. Uh, um, so Banting shares his prize money with Best, and McLeod shared his with Collip. And Noble, nobody nobody gave him anything. <laughs> Noble had no part of the Nobel apparently. Ooh, uh... I do. I, I'm sure that was kind of a weird, awkward conversation. Like you know, they're they're giving Noble's the prize, just... and they're like, okay, well, oh, oh, hey guys, I um. Just sees him at the yeah, bar. Yeah, you did help. You did help. <laughs> did so Noble, I'm going to give you some. Did he get in there? So Best did the work. So they figured this out within three months or whatever that period of time was. So really, did that, Noble do anything? Uh, I'm I'm sure if you really deep dive, he probably did help quite a bit because he was in, in the lab. It's just he mm-hmm. didn't end up sharing a lot of the accolades in the end. So mm-hmm. uh, Maybe he was uh, a jerk. 
Maybe they didn't like him. Well, they didn't even like Collip, and they gave him part of the credit. Yeah, so, but he did a lot. They're of work. both Canadian. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, should be nicer. I, I just wonder what that passive aggressive conversation. I'm sure to be a fly on the wall is probably interesting. Actually, I wonder, computer, do you could you bring out like do you have any insight into what that conversation was like? Computer, where are you? Are you there? Where is she? Oh, she's on vacation. I pulled up the earlier historical reenactment manually. Didn't she take a vacation a few months ago with her old boyfriend? Yeah. Does she just get to take vacations every time she meets a new boyfriend? I mean, she's a sentient computer, so yeah, probably. She's still dating that chat GPT bot thing? Yeah, as far as I know. Weird question. Do you, do you think we should meet her boyfriend? Well, what would that accomplish? And, and how would we meet an online AI bot? I don't know. I Maybe just invite him over for dinner? I mean, it's not like our show's sentient computer is our daughter or anything. Oh, Mike programmed her, so kind of is. Well, she doesn't listen to me anymore. Yeah, that sounds that sounds pretty realistic. I'm just saying, maybe maybe we should make an effort to meet this new guy in her life, kind of like vet him a bit. I'm sure, Chat GPT is like a nice enough guy, right? I mean, just get to know him. Well, considering it derives much of its programming from the entirety of the internet, no, he's probably not a nice guy. Yeah, I don't like him. Fair enough. I guess we'll just cross that bridge when we come to it. Where was I? Yeah, about time to talk about how a 100-year-old plus drug comes to cost so much in the United States because it does give us a little bit of insight into medical history and the patenting process. So the insulin patent, this is an amazing discovery. It's completely life-changing and life-saving for a huge segment of the population. And you would think that doctors Banting, Best, Collip were all going to cash in on this, but they did not believe it or not, of their own accord, they refused to profit off of this. So they took the patent for the substance insulin and the method that they used to make it, and they sold the patent to the University of Toronto, where they developed it, in exchange for $1 each, because you actually have to you have to have put some nominal amount on it. So they said, all right, $1. I guess they did profit $1 each. Mm-hmm. Banting actually put... Uh, in in the agreement, quote, insulin does not belong to me. It belongs to the world, end quote. And so that's that's pretty outstanding as far as, you know, just general ethics go. And it will definitely go to prove the point that no good deed goes unpunished. So in a joint letter from Banting, Best, Collip, and McLeod, the, the four Nobel people that uh, was written to the University of Toronto upon selling the patent, uh, they put in, Quote, the patent would not be used for any other purpose than to prevent the taking out of a patent by other persons. When the details of the method of preparation are published, anyone would be free to prepare the extract, but no one should secure a profitable monopoly. But to this day, there is no generic insulin. So how does that happen? Basically, these guys get together and they say, look, we're giving this to the world. Here's how we did it. Here's how to make it. We are doing this literally so that nobody can secure a monopoly on this and you know profit wildly enter eli Lilly. in may of 1922 they signed an agreement with the university of toronto which results in the sharing of knowledge of how the insulin was isolated and extracted in other words they are somewhat involved in the process of of helping along the discovery in a logistical way okay so in 1922, in the same year, basically, they start really using it. Lilly becomes the first to commercially produce insulin. So they don't own the patent, but they are commercially producing it. And even if they didn't have the patent, they really wanted it. And, and they made a lot of attempts to try and get it. 
But what they did was they went around and did things like patenting the uh, improvements in the production process and uh, things like that. And so even though they couldn't patent the insulin substance, they did patent about every bit of improvement in its making that they could. And uh, they were then joined by other pharma companies. So in the 1930s and the 1940s, insulin gets tweaked a little bit. So chemically, they start coming up with insulin types that last longer, or when you inject them, uh, they, they have a slower time till they onset. And they do this by kind of tweaking the molecule and, you know, in, in whatever process that they use to add that uh, adjustment to the molecule, they patent that so that they are the only company who can make that kind of insulin. Initially, when we were making insulin, like I said, they were taking animal organs, they were harvesting it and trying to extract it, and uh, it's not very pure. So you would actually, if you look at old containers from, like, Lily back in the day, you'd be like, oh, this is ox insulin, and this is, you know, uh, this is uh, cow insulin or whatnot. So it actually was very, you know, a really animal-derived product. In the 1970s, however, we have a big breakthrough. We have recombinant DNA technology, which basically allows scientists to genetically engineer bacteria. And recombinant meaning like taking bits of DNA from one bacteria or another uh, another thing with DNA and then putting it into a bacteria to use that DNA like a little factory. And it so turns out that in, they are able to eventually take genes to make insulin and put them into E. coli. And E. coli bacteria then become an insulin factory, believe it or not. So now you don't have to rely on any impure animal bits to have your insulin. And you, in, in the mid-1980s, this is called a recombinant insulin because it comes from that recombinant DNA technology. It's put under the brand name Humulin. You guys have probably heard of Humulin, have you not? Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask, because I don't, I don't remember like how it was made. It's impressive. It is. It's it's fascinating. I mean, it's a, it's amazing. It's just you know, so you you can basically take bacteria and tell their genetic code to make insulin. Take the insulin out of whatever this bacteria soup is. I'm sure there's more to it than that. But there's, it, it it's it's brilliant. It's amazing. It is truly a, an incredible achievement in science. And so now most of the insulin, basically all the insulin we have, is made from recombinant DNA technology, little E. coli insulin factories. But that's been around since the 1970s, so why is it still so expensive? Can I just can interject and have like an uncomfortable conversation about it? You know, because we sure. look at we look at Banting and like what he did was truly like, like one of like one of the probably the greatest things in medicine. And then to not he he took credit for it with the Nobel Prize, but didn't profit from it. So he truly was like, I'm trying to help humanity. Period. Yes. But now these other companies now are going to be able to manufacture it at a global scale. And that costs money in order for them to do that, you mm-hmm. know, and they're a company and they've got shareholders and all that stuff. So they need to you know, potentially do these things. We are looking at it from a negative lens. Like, and I know that they're, it's markedly more expensive than it should be, but um, like we needed them to make it on a big scale to help more people. Yeah. That's absolutely true. No, it's no true. dispute there. Which is the, what they always say as a justification for, mm-hmm. for the problem. Yeah, that's why I was saying like uncomfortable. So, yeah. No, they're, they're, no, I think that's Complex. a very reasonable yeah. counterpoint because, yes, yeah. uh, the, you know, the fact of the matter is it does take the machinery to make this at a full scale. So yeah. there's the, I and think most of the debate. Then... 
is not that they should be zero profit from any of this because you have to exist as a company. You have mm-hmm. to make enough money to continue existing. At the the I think the negativity comes from how far this has been pushed over a hundred years and how the what I'm talk about next has been used to justify higher costs than this should really cost by by a long margin. And mm-hmm. so even though the initial profits are reasonable to keep the you know keep the company doing its thing this has clearly gone to a very extreme degree and uh in the people in the US are paying for it now so that gets to evergreening patents and that's how this happens so what evergreening means is that a company like Eli Lilly or other pharma companies especially in the case of insulin this is like Novo and Sanofi they continue to practice this where they will tweak the insulin molecule, patent that molecule, or change the process and patent that. And once the patent is about to run out, which is about 20 years for a new patent, it just so happens that in that 19th year, usually they will have a new process that comes out that might tweak the molecule a little bit. They can repatent it, and then that way they can continue to hold the patent and hold all the means of producing insulin. They can charge whatever they really want to for it, at least in the U.S., Mm-hmm. So that means that if you today, Mike, Aaron, or me said, you know what, let's make generic insulin because you can, anybody can make insulin. There's, there's no patent on insulin. Um, if you want to make it, here's what you would have to do. Number one, you would have to synthesize it with a non-patented means. So you could use some of the old ways, sure, but they're probably less efficient. And even then, you'd have to like have the startup costs to make the company. Once you have a company that's like, hey, I make insulin, you know, the FDA wants to know that you're doing it right. So then you've got to go through that whole approval process because you're, even if it's a generic insulin, you're kind of bringing a new drug to the market. And a couple of uh, researchers and physicians, Drs. Green and Riggs, actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 19, 2015, and they looked at this question they said you know by the time you get through all the red tape the investment costs and you know starting up a new process etc from scratch if you were to make generic insulin it might come down to about 20 to 40 percent less than whatever you're paying for insulin now in the u.s because there's so much that would go into making it from scratch whereas if you are the company who makes all the insulin and you've been doing it the same way for you know well, let's say the, the recombinant technology for 40 years plus and, you know, the, the very old ways, it, you you can make it a lot cheaper because you already have everything in place. But it's a lot more profitable if you just retweak the process and keep the cost high. Do you think that maybe, because this is a global company, do you think we could do like local insulin production, like you like farm to table? Like you go, <laughs> you buy your quarter cow, they take out the pancreas, they isolate the insulin, and then you can get it for cheap. Artisanal like, insulin. Yeah. That, that would not be <laughs> cheaper, say, though. That would not be cheaper. In the modern climate, that's one. That's probably uh, that's a proposed solution that might, uh, <laughs> it might right? actually have traction more so than actually making these companies well, not. Well, I mean, you do couch. have to, you know, when you get mad at late-stage capitalism, you got to acknowledge, though, too, I mean, this is an incredibly reliable, clean product that you know i don't know if i've ever seen allergic reaction to insulin yeah so i mean in the modern era and you know we give it all the time to people and it and it works really well so that availability i mean that does take a lot of logistics right and as i'm hearing this too like the frustration that i have is like with the patent process so if there's something that could be beneficial or better in any way and you take 19 years to fix it because you want to stretch out the patent that bothers me you know like let's say there's a new device where you like 
you know, the glucose monitoring things and then, mm-hmm. you know, insulin pumps, like maybe an insulin pump would have come to market 19 years before that, but they were holding on to it because they wanted yeah. to push the patent on the road. Mm-hmm. So it's that's just, a bothersome one thing to me. That's, yeah, I agree. I whole, wholeheartedly agree. I mean, the fact of the matter is insulin should not cost as much as it does here. Uh, it costs a fraction of what it does here in other countries. Uh, and a lot of reasons that we should probably not dive into on the medical history podcast but uh they're you know the at the end of the day this substance which has been around for or has been used as a medication for over 100 years is crazy expensive because of patenting and greed that's just that's the fact of fact of the matter well greed it's unfortunate or capitalism and I think some people would is put that those two word? together. Is that I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Like it depends on your perspective and how, like the words you use to describe it. Unfortunately, then, modern capitalism is becoming more and more synonymous with that. And I don't think that's where capitalism came from. I mean, I think if you really dive back into Adam Smith, there's a lot more there than just naked. Yeah, greed. and that's why it's nuanced. So I'm not going to like take a step. No, I agree. I, I know. I absolutely agree. That's I, why it's I so think... frustrating when when. Pharma executives come out and say, oh, I'm just going to charge what the market can bear. Be like, nope, the people die without this. Wait, so and I, don't I think, think that's the other thing, too, that it is a, a life changing or life saving yeah. drug. So yeah. if it was something, it was like, you know, if, if it's a boner yeah. pill, it's like charge yeah. whatever you want for it. Right. Like, or like yeah, exactly. HDTVs exactly. or in the NFL, you know what? Fine. Go ahead. Charge what you want. I, right? I think where that's that emotional part that. of it. Like, yeah, you shouldn't charge this much because because you think about a lot of the people that we see, a lot of people that we see, like they don't have the the money to afford these things. Yeah. There's no way when I when I think about like being a diabetic, there's no way that I could be a good diabetic because I don't know how to count carbs. Like I you know like it's such a detailed oriented yeah, thing in a daily like all day thing that you're thinking about. Like I don't know that I'd be able to manage that. Yeah. I mean, really, it should, on top of all of the difficulty in managing this disease of somebody who has it, uh, is you add these other extra social constraints. And it's like, no wonder that folks fall behind and don't take care of themselves because there's so much that goes into it and add the financial impact, add all the, you know, hassle of taking three, four shots a day, you know, and counting your carbs and counting but all that. But it was that. way like, more hey. before. Yeah. And then oh, figuring out like, absolutely. okay, so I ate yep. a cheeseburger. So it's that many carbs and then I've got to correct with this many units of insulin. I got to know when I give it. Yep. Yep. It's uh, it's not easy to manage. And I mean, it just really should be as simple as possible so i mean i think at the end of the really my my take from this was that it, it's just really sad to see where we ended up considering how noble these guys started out yep yeah that's a good way is. to put it now that we've I mean, alienated that's the half sad our... part <laughs> that's the sad part now we've riled up our our whole listener base what's mm-hmm. our twitter handle again yeah let's <laughs> well speaking of which we do appreciate everyone listening and we'd love to hear from all of you out there if you'd like to send us a message or provide feedback we can be reached through our website www.forhistoriansspod.com and there you can find links to our social media sites we take emails at forhistorianspod at gmail.com and work to respond to all posts on various social media accounts and even when we can't find them anymore and are filled with regret. So please send me a message so I know who you are. If you have time, please go and leave us a nice five-star review on iTunes or whichever platform you choose. Be sure to tell everyone you know about the show. Like, maybe include a mention in your TED Talk when you give it. We'd appreciate that. And many thanks to our sponsor, Artery Inc. Go check them out to support the show. If you'd like to support us in other ways, check out our own merchandise going from our website. If you're old-fashioned, make a full-length feature film and put an Easter egg message in the credits. We'll be humbled by the amount of work you took to do that, and you'll probably go watch it, too. Until next time, four historians are signing out AMA.
medical advice. It exists only to entertain. That was a All perfect right. voice crack. <laughs> yeah. Well, exists. <laughs> listener needs to know that I'm I'm starting a new cold. I miss I miss Shmilly, Shmilly. I miss just ducking and withdrawing from society and not getting sick with anything. Mm-hmm. It was and so all nice. the common colds. It was, it was kind of nice. Like, yeah, now you can't it even really like, make nice a face when somebody coughs. You're like, oh, whatever. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Remember before, you're like, what the hell you're are you doing? You're a civilian now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, Max, it's Dr. Provolone. I got to tell you, the plural of the pancreas is a pancreata. <laughs> I'm looking that up right now. You can Google well, it. Okay, yes. The, the pancreas, plural, pancreata. Is Pancreases a or pancreata. Oh both God. are acceptable. Okay, whatever. Just give me a, give me an unenthusiastic wow. <laughs> I wanted to say that I because I thought that everybody... Remember that show on Nickelodeon? We have anyway. two lines left. <laughs> uh, that one uh, was it Degrassi. A lot of the Nickelodeon shows were Canadian, so I thought everybody talked like that. Anyway, what are you talking about? It was called, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, you have two lines left. <laughs>